Number 179, we've been asked to mark that, and we're always delighted to lift our voices together in song as we have done so far tonight. And certainly, it's another blessed opportunity that we could come together as the Lord's family here at Pippin and to give some thought to not only the other aspects of worship, but to devote a few moments to a section of the Word of God. You may have noted in the reading that Brother Dennis read just a few moments ago, it's a rather short New Testament verse, but three words of Luke 17, 32. And yet in that particular passage, it seems as if the Lord had so much to say and so many truths that might well be of great benefit to us. You'll notice the title is Remembering Lot's Wife. Now, the actual word that the Lord gave was a commandment. In the original language, it's an imperative in the, in the way in which it's phrased in Greek. And it's also a second-person active character of its tense. And so that really is a very strong lesson for all of us. There are truths connected to Lot's wife that we have been ordered to remember. Tonight, we'll select a few of them and take a look at what lessons we might draw from that particular recollection. Allow me to begin the lesson, if I might, like this. I suppose we're all rather impressed from time to time how that, across the biblical stage, or at least the presentation of the, of the pamphlet of the Word of God, we often see some individuals who are mentioned very little. The woman of Tekoa of 2 Samuel 14, mentioned only in that one chapter of the Bible. In fact, but part of that one chapter of the Bible. And yet, what she said to David left a lasting impression, reminding him of the need to bring home his banished son Absalom. Or we could also make note of that widow of Luke 21. Cast in but two mites into the treasury. She's only mentioned in that one episode in the Word of God. And yet, what an impression she has left. I suppose if you and I had been there standing over next to the wall watching people cast in that which was their offering, we might have felt bad for her. We might, you see, have felt embarrassed that she only threw in so little. And yet... Jesus, throughout all these ages, has left a commendation upon her. She, more so than those that gave more physically, she gave all she had. That's certainly something that's left a lasting impression, hasn't it? In addition to those two, what about diatrophies, to think about a negative example? Mentioned in only one place, Second John verse 9, or rather 3 John verse 9, and yet we also have learned that we sure don't want to be like him. Maybe one final example would be little Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, but one New Testament reference, that's it. And yet he climbed a sycamore tree and forevermore has left an impression upon us of someone who sought to see the Lord and who went to extremes to do it. Well, I say all of that to say that as you think about those who might well be mentioned so little, isn't that also something that's true of Lot's wife? We find her mentioned in these words that Jesus mentioned here, and we found the exact record of her characteristics in the book of Genesis. But other than that, why don't we tonight reflect upon Lot's wife and seek to learn some things from her? As we do that, we'll close that particular slide before you by reminding ourselves that this is the Lord's commandment. It is otherwise not something that's our idea. With that, why don't we first rehearse the history of the moment. 
That is to say, from the book of Genesis, what what were the circumstances surrounding Lot's introduction into our understanding, and that too of his wife. And upon doing that, then let's learn a few lessons from her. It all begins, of course, in the early chapters of Genesis. Isn't it true that as we come upon Genesis 11... We well remember that at that particular moment, Abram's family lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now, if you and I like to associate that to somewhere that's familiar to us today, it's modern-day Iraq. It's where Saddam Hussein, you see, had his forces. That's where he lived. Well, that's the place that was where Ur of the Chaldees was. At that particular time, you see, Abram's father, Terah, lived there. He and the family. But in the closing verses of Genesis 11, we well recall that they had begun to leave. They had begun to make ready to leave this place. And as the next chapter opens, the God of heaven rather particularly addresses Abram and makes a fourfold promise to him, promising him that he needs to leave and go to a place that he would be shown. God didn't tell him where he was going. He didn't map out for him as a modern-day map would. This is where I want you to go. Abram left by faith. Genesis, rather Hebrews 11 reminds us that by faith, Abram left the place that was the year of the Chaldees and went to a place that he would later be shown. That too is much to be said about faith, isn't it? Acting upon what God says merely because He said to do it. It's not that it'll always make the most sense to our culture. In fact, most of the time it won't. And it may not always make the most of credible sense to you and me, but because God said it, we will always do it. You'll notice on that particular slide as we make this journey forward, we soon come to the closing verses of Genesis 12 and to the opening verses of Genesis 13. And we find that Abram along with him went Haran's son. Now, Haran was Abram's older brother. Lot was his son. And yet, as Lot went along with Abraham in this particular journey, we soon recognize the fact that both Abram and Lot were dramatically blessed. God poured forth a large number of blessings and riches upon them, so much so that the land was not able to bear the extensiveness of both of them. Lot's herdmen and Abram's herdmen were in a contention. They were in a strife because the land wasn't able to bear both of them. The text expressly says that Abram had a lot of gold. He had a lot of cattle. He had a lot of riches. And furthermore, Lot had a lot of flocks and a lot of cattle. The time came that Abram allowed Lot to make a choice, a decision, because Abram said, We be brethren, let us not strive. And thus he said, Let's separate one from the other. You, Lot, make the choice. You choose the way in which you will wish to go, and I will go the opposite. Lot, given that opportunity, as he looked and saw the well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley, He chose that direction, and so he journeyed eastward from where they then were. Abraham, of course, journeyed in that middle section more westward, and he journeyed thus and dwelled at a place that was somewhat removed from where Lot had chosen, just as he promised he would. 
Is it any wonder then that we quickly observe things like this? Verse number 12 and 13 quickly reminds us that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now at that point, it doesn't say he lived in the city. All it says is that in the direction toward Sodom, that's where Lot began to move, and that's where he proceeded to dwell. But yet we are told something dramatic in verse 13. We're told that the place was wicked, and we're told that it was exceedingly so. I've always found it, I'm sure we all have, very interesting when the Bible uses adverbs like this. For instance, when it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly in the closing verse of Luke 22. Well, it's one thing to cry. And it's another thing to shed tears, but it's a whole nother matter altogether when you have to do it bitterly. I suppose most any of us could say, likely on one hand, a number of times in our life we've cried bitterly. But yet the circumstances surrounding Peter's givenness to that sure has much to say. But isn't it true that back to the passage before us, we notice here the adverb exceedingly describes the people who lived in Sodom. They weren't just wicked. That would be bad enough. But they were wicked exceedingly. And yet, Lot had chosen to pitch his tent in that direction. And yet, rather amazingly, when we arrive at Genesis 18 and the opening verses of Genesis 19, it's not merely that Lot was dwelling near there. He was sitting at the city gate. And that's the place he now dwelled. He lived in Sodom. Sin has a way of growing on us, does it, if we aren't careful? At first, we may, with enough mental intensity to remain aloof or distant from it, but after a while, if we stay friends with it long enough, it'll rub off enough and we'll find ourselves right in the middle of it. And that appears to be what happened a lot. And oh, how his family would suffer because of that. As you and I close that slide, though, can't we say this? We do learn in the closing verses of Genesis 18 that angelic visitors came. And we find that Abram was given some information. Abram was told that Sodom was wicked and that God was going to destroy it. And Abram took the opportunity to negotiate with God. God, will you destroy the city if 50 righteous people can be found in it? And God said, I will not. But he said, suppose five are lacking out of that number. Will you still destroy it if there's 45? And God said, no, I won't. Well, suppose there's 40 there. Will you destroy it if there's 40 righteous people? And God said, I will not. That number continued through 30 and 20 and 10. God, if there are ten righteous people in Sodom, will you destroy it? The bargaining session ends, and God says, If there's ten righteous in Sodom, I will preserve it. The chapter closes, and chapter 19 opens, and now two angelic visitors have come to Sodom, and Lot is sitting right at the city gate, and he invites them to come to his house because he knows there's danger if they remain in the street all night. Danger. Not just uncomfort, but, but actual danger. As those visitors come, we find that sure enough, at first they resist Sodom, or rather Lot's invitation. But finally, after he presses them hard, 
they come and dwell with him that night. But about the time of darkness, as the evening settles upon the city, there comes a knock at Lot's door. And the men of the city are insistent. Bring out those visitors that have come to you that we might know them. Now we soon learned that this wasn't a courtesy call. It wasn't a mere hospitality measure in which they were desirous of literally making better acquaintance with them. That's not what they had in mind. We soon learned that they had a very wicked motivation of homosexuality in mind. And they were desirous of knowing them in this way. Lot, understanding that, refused to give the visitors to them. In other words, he went out onto the porch, if I may describe it so, and kept the visitors inside, and he tried to bargain with them. He tried to talk to them, to reason with them, and they would have none of it. Finally, those angelic visitors that were there struck all those men with blindness, and the text says they were trying to find the door of the house. It didn't deter them, you see. They still were anxious to know these to know these angelic visitors. But we soon learned that those angelic visitors pulled Lot back into the house, and in so doing, stri- striking the men of the city with the blindness, they said, Look, we are on a mission from God, and we're going to destroy this place, and you and the family have got to get out of town fast. You've got to get out quickly. We soon learned that Lot and the family lingered. They hastened. They did not move in a rapid enough way. And sure enough, as the morning came, we find that the visitors finally said, Look, we cannot destroy this place as long as you're here. You have got to move out fast. And so ultimately, Lot and his wife and his two daughters began this procession out of town. As you can well tell on the slide, we notice that the message, the mission that was given to these visitors was going to involve a final destruction of this place. You and I remember what took place. As all four of them proceeded out of town, we remember that a particular set of instructions was given. You hasten out, you dwell in the mountains, but do not look back. Well, Lot and the two daughters proceeded on that way. They did not look back, but Lot's wife did. She looked back, and the text says that she became a pillar of salt. She was turned instantly into a pillar of salt. In verse 26 of the chapter, God rained fire and brimstone on Sodom, on Gomorrah, and on a number of the cities of the plain, and they were all destroyed. And it certainly serves to you and me as a rather remarkable lesson about what happened in the long ago. Having said those things, and the closing of that slide as well, maybe reminds us of this. Jesus said to remember Lot's wife. What might be some lessons, some observations we could make that could be beneficial to us today, though we live so many centuries later? Allow me to list just a few of them. I certainly wouldn't claim that the list is, is exhaustive, but here are some. One of the first lessons that you and I could take to heart might well be this one. We ought to be very cautious and very careful about somehow supposing 
that association by itself is equivalent to salvation. What might we mean by that? Isn't it interesting? Lot's wife was married to Lot, obviously. And yet in 2 Peter 2, several times he's called righteous. Lot is called a righteous man. None of us would say that everything Lot did was worthy of imitation. None of us would say that every decision that he made was notable and worthy and exactly on target. For after all, there's at least two or three things I'm sure each of us can remember that surely we would not want to imitate that. But remember, the Bible doesn't give every detail of a person's life supposing it's good. The Bible just tells the truth. Whether the decisions were right or whether they weren't so well to be noteworthy, the Bible just tells us the truth. Lot didn't always make the best decisions. And yet, he's called righteous. Doesn't that remind us? You and I might on occasion fail, and yet if our heart is directed in the way that's notable, and we pursue God in terms of seeking forgiveness, that things will be okay. But in the place before us, notice what else might be said about her. Not only did she know Lot, she knew Abraham, Lot's uncle. Or Lot's uncle. Not only that, she knew Sarah, again, Lot's aunt. She was associated with and affiliated with a family whose roots of faithfulness ran deep. But that didn't mean that she made the right choice in this occasion. It didn't mean that she was saved in her condition of looking back and becoming a pillar of salt. Today, isn't it still true that that kind of an impression can be a great meaningful matter to us? Just because we happen to work for somebody that's faithful, or just because we happen to live beside someone that's faithful, or just because our family has been known for that, doesn't mean that's true of me. It doesn't mean that that is certainly a guarantee of my faithfulness. Many times in the Word of God, we recall individuals in that predicament. Many of the kings of the Old Testament, they themselves are said to have been righteous, and yet their offspring were not. We could talk about Solomon. Solomon, though he had some mistakes, he by and large wrote for us books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, and yet he had a son named Rehoboam who was a fool. He absolutely led in his foolishness to the splitting of the kingdom, 1 Kings 11 and 12. Those kinds of things are certainly interesting. And again, Lot's wife reminds us of that truth as well. Just because one might be associated with faithful people doesn't mean that I am. And it might not mean that you are either. But what about a second lesson? One in addition to this might well, of course, ring so powerfully to note the following. Some might be quick to say this. Family tends to be very important to us. We love our children. We are delighted by the thoughts of their families. Think about how much we often dote upon our grandchildren. And think of how meaningful they are to us. And the kind of innocence and purity we see in them. And as they grow, we want them so much to come to know the kind of life of faithfulness that we would wish for them. Who all lived in Sodom? 
We've noted Lot and his wife lived there, but notice their two daughters lived there. But the daughters were married, and so Lot's sons-in-law lived there as well. As far as the record of that particular chapter tells us, they didn't have any children at that point. But aren't we reminded the hope that grandchildren might one day be? I suppose we might could well understand why Lot's wife looked back. Her sons-in-law were there. These men that maybe had come to mean so very much to her. The character of the next generation and likely, of course, the ones through whom her grandchildren would come. She looked back. You, might, you and I might well excuse her for that. Couldn't we understand why she might? But yet God didn't excuse her for it. He had said, do not look back. He told her, do not. In fact, told Lot and the others as well. She chose not to abide by that. She chose to look back. And in so doing, of course, the penalty was her life. Could I invite each of us to note, no sin is ignorable. No sin is to be, in essence, justified by simply saying, well, I couldn't help it. You can help it. Every sin is a choice. There is no sin that you and I are prompted beyond our means to do it. It's always a choice, every time. In this case, she made the choice to look back. We can't excuse then because she didn't know what God said. She knew it. She understood it. She appreciated it. The others knew it. On the slide before you, I've asked you to note with me a few thoughts then about how that may we never be led, though our culture will often encourage us to do so. Culture encourages us to excuse sin. Everybody does it. Maybe you remember your parents or grandparents when you came home from school and said, but Dad, everybody does it. Well, Dad often had some rather powerful things to say that you're not just going to do it because, every, because a lot of other people are. And that's not enough reason for you to be involved in this. Sometimes alcohol seems to fall in that category. But dad and mom, everybody's doing it. Dad and mom, everybody's sleeping around. There's nothing to it. There's no harm in it. And dad and mom will not crack any kind of smile at that kind of reasoning. They will insist so strongly and it'll break their heart because seeing a child think along those lines, understanding that they weren't brought up that way, doesn't it remind you one more time, no sin's ignorable. You'll notice one more thing about that slide is that in the New Testament when sin is described, we're often reminded throughout the Word of God sometimes there were incidents and episodes in which, from a human standpoint, most would call it a little sin, but it sure had grave consequences, didn't it? Can you and I remember that scene when Uzzah touched the ark? The oxen that in fact were pulling the cart on which the ark was riding, the oxen stumbled. Here was a dumb animal that stumbled. Could it be that the ark might have been damaged? Could it be that the ark might otherwise fall into disrepair? Maybe Uzzah was just keenly concerned with making sure the ark made it to its destination in safety and therefore that people would be able to worship around it. That didn't matter. 
Us that was not authorized to touch it, that settled the matter. And us that died. God's words, you see, are such that He meant what He said and He said what He meant. May we never allow others, culture, perspective, or otherwise, to lead us to suppose that certain kinds of behavior don't really mean that much. They really aren't that serious. Any sin, regardless what it might otherwise be called, is serious business, isn't it? As you and I close the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, aren't we reminded that every sin, may I again say, every sin, we find cast into a place of outer darkness. Aren't we thankful then that we can be cleansed from sin like we learned this morning, that what sins I might well have been guilty of can be washed away in the blood of Christ. But at least in Lot's wife, we learn that no sin can be ignored. What about lesson three? Another one might be this one. What about the thought of actions involved in what God revealed to Lot's wife? You and I notice again that she was told, just as was Lot and the daughters, you leave the city, you exit the city. As you do so, go to the place wherein safety shall be found, but do not look back. Do not look back. Without doubt, God again gave messages like that for the benefit of them. For after all, upon looking back, what would one see? You'd see this place, again, in, known for its wickedness, burned up. That would include those sons-in-law that chose not to leave. It would include others who no doubt they were friends with who chose not to leave. It would include all the other aspects of what associations one had had in that town. Don't look back. Sometimes when you and I look upon things, it leaves lasting Im images and impressions in our mind and heart. In this instance, actions are required. She perished not because of where she had lived. She perished because she didn't obey. You see, she was going to be saved from the town if she had just obeyed. But therein lies the matter. She didn't. Actions are required, aren't they? That's still true today. God requires of you and me to be saved. There's actions required. And we won't be saved because we once were sinners. We'll be saved because we left that and followed the things of the Lord and thus obtained remission from those sins. But actions are required. It's for that reason on that slide I've invited you to note the following. The number of verses, both Old and New Testament, shine so beautifully with those truths before us. In 1 Peter 1.22, Who were those that were purified? Those that had obeyed the truth. In Luke 11.28, Jesus said, Who are they that are pleasing before God? Those that hear the word of the Lord and keep it. It isn't enough to hear it. It isn't enough to intend to do it. It's those that keep it. Not only that. What about that text of James 2.17? Isn't it faith without works that's dead? It's those works that are required to accompany that faith. Actions indeed required. Just as it was in the days of Lot's wife. 
Remember Lot's wife. What about lesson four? The fourth observation that we might make. This one is one that might be easy to overlook, I suppose, in the record of Lot's wife, but it is nonetheless one that it seems to me has a great deal of import within it. You might notice the text is very careful to say that she did begin to leave the town. She and her husband and the two daughters, they did begin to leave. She had made some approach. She had made some progress toward leaving Sodom. But she didn't make it all the way. She looked back. I entitled this one, Continued Faithfulness. And certainly you and I can see the way in which we can easily develop it. Because it's so harmonious with the other parts of the Word of God. You and I can first become a Christian. We can leave the world of sin. We can leave behind the entrenching and characteristic matters in which we were engulfed at one time. Peter would say it like this in 2 Peter 2 verse 20. We were clean escaped from the pollutions of the world. But we can then again be overcome by what we once had left. We can again be entangled in it. We can again fall prey to it. Isn't that what happened to her? She started to leave. She made some progress, but then she looked back. The temptation of what was there apparently became too much, and she fell victim to it. She gave in to what she knew she was not supposed to do. That could happen to me or you. Once a faithful Christian, once having left behind some way of attitude, some way of behavior, some kind of conduct, and then the time comes we fall back into it. We were saved for a little bit, but then we became guilty again and fell prey to that kind of life. You see, to be saved eventually and finally, we need to be steadfast and faithful continuously. May we encourage of ourselves that way of thinking using some of those verses on that slide. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight will say, My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That word steadfast has within it the concept of continually clinging and grasping to this for which one seeks. Beyond that, look at this verse in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the Spirit, or rather who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemnation. But notice the present tense verb is to walk continuously, confidently, and in an ongoing way. That sweet promise of Romans 8 verse 1, no condemnation to those who walk after the Spirit. Doesn't that remind us of one final passage in 1 John 1 7, that you and I as we walk in the light on a daily basis, we enjoy the continual cleansing of, of the blood of Christ Jesus. Lot's wife, you see, reminds us, it's not enough to start the journey of faithfulness. What's important is to conclude that journey. The Christian life has often been compared not so much to a sprint, like a 100-yard dash. It's compared more to a marathon. 
The important thing, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and following, to finish the race, to finish that race with success, and to do so with a degree, you see, of the crown of life that's awaiting those that are the faithful. Tonight, we've been admonished to remember Lot's wife. Isn't it interesting that in the place that Jesus made that statement in Luke 17, 32, He was discussing the end of time. He was discussing the characteristics that would take place as the Lord is making ready to come back. It's in that very context we are commanded to remember Lot's wife. May we not just start the Christian journey, but may we, unlike her, be faithful to that journey and not look back to a world of sin. Not look back to a world of ungodliness or wickedness or filthiness or lack of commitment, but a life that is fully dedicated and devoted to the Lord who died for us. The conclusion slide then to this lesson tonight is just again a brief reminder of what we've attempted to note. Remember Lot's wife? We first considered the history of the moments in Genesis chapters 11 on to chapter 19. Then we looked at these lessons about association alone is not enough to guarantee salvation. No sin is ignorable. The characteristic features you see of the behavior of Lot's wife remind us we too must continue in faithfulness, recognizing, you see, that actions are required. Tonight, if there could be someone in this assembly who would be desirous of making a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be honored to assist and to help in the ways that would be stated and set before us in the Holy Bible. Tonight, if we could be of some help, don't delay, don't wait, for you see, another day may not be ours, but this time is a convenient time of reply. This song of encouragement has been chosen, and as we stand and sing it in just a moment, won't you come? And if we could be of assistance or help in either ways, as an alien sinner or as one who has once been a Christian but is now not faithful, we simply would wish for you to do that which the Bible would describe and do it at once while we stand and sing.